0: One of President Trump's last acts as president to pardon Aviem Seller, who was the Mossad agent who recruited Jonathan Pollard.
1: Um, so we see this kind of continuity here. You know, um, Pollard
0: is is now living in in Israel, um, and yeah, it's it's uh, it's a really wild story when you think about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing.
0: Well, thank you both. It's always fun to do this, so we're happy to do it again. Thanks, Ali. Excellent. Thanks, Ali.
2: And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features, and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support The Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at The Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM, also heard at translator K220HR Hood River at 91.9 FM and translator K282BH in Philomath at 104.3 FM. And we're streaming at the top. When of our the farmer
3: land. comes to town with his wagon broken down, the
4: farmer is
5: tune in to the Dirt Bag every second Wednesday of the month at 11 a.m.
4: Learn
3: to grow your tasty fruits and vegetables
4: in your home garden.
5: There is a monthly garden stumper, calendar of gardening events. You can even call in with your gardening questions.
4: That's the Dirt Bag every second Wednesday, 11 to 12 a.m. That's on K-B-O-O-Portland. Listen, Listen, laugh, laugh, learn. learn.
3: The farmer is the man that feeds them all. My Hello and welcome to the KBO Bike Show broadcasting from Portland, Oregon On 90.7 FM and streaming live on kbo.fm All our shows are archived at www.bikeshow.portlandtransport.com Thanks to Chris Smith and Josh Hetrick. My name is Alon Robb, and I'm joined today by co-host Nedra Dedeweiler. Today's guests are two men in the forefront of the struggle for mobility justice, Jim Merrill of Chicago's Active Transportation Group and Alotanji Oboi-Reed, founder and head of Equaticity Ventures. This is the last show of the year. Those keen on end-of-year reflections will have much to ponder and make sense of. From a near coup in the land to the ongoing ravages of the pandemic from racist attacks and murders to the growing economic and power disparity between the billionaires and the rest of us fortunately there is also much to be thankful for from the many healthcare workers risking their lives to the growing awareness about the planet's destruction and the many joining the fight to save it. Closer to home on the bike show, we said goodbye to Tori Bortman and April Streeter, who have been involved with the show for many years. Tori and April, you are missed, but I'm glad that you are pursuing your dreams and goals. During the year, I was joined by community activist and leader Nedra Deadweiler, who was a guest on one of our shows And then became a co-host i am happy you are here with us nedra during the last year we were fortunate to have fantastic guests they included middle eastern women cyclists and activists suzanne schfik of palestine and cecile Uznur khan of turkey Portlander Clara Hunsinger, the reigning U.S. women's cyclocross champion, John Waterman of PEAC, programs to educate all cyclists who advocates for transportation equity for those differently abled. Sky Wildcat of the Cherokee Nation, who spoke about the Remember the Removal Ride, commemorating the Trail of Tears, and Sofia Reyes and Olivia Barraza of Latinas NBC, a group that increases ridership and builds community among Hispanic women in Arkansas. Thank you to all our guests for the good work you are doing in the world where the bicycle is an important part of the journey and for being on the show. We are always open to suggestions for topics you would like to see covered. Please, feel free to contact me at alonkrob at gmail.com. We're also looking for another person to join our team, so if you are interested in learning what is involved in being a co-host, please contact me at alonkrob at gmail.com. As we still record from home, there is no need for you to live in Portland. Hoping to hear from you soon. Was Bicycle, a 1954 song by Sri Lanka's Vincent de Paul Pierias. Before we speak with Jim Merrill, advocacy director of Chicago's Active Transportation Group, and Alotangio Boy Reed, founder and head of Equaticity Ventures, a few news items from the vast bicycle universe with the recent victory of the taliban the lives of women in afghanistan who participated in sporting activities including cycling were in danger taliban officials announced the immediate banning of all sport activities by girls and women twenty-five members of the afghan girls cycling team were able to escape to safety the team's former captain Khalida popal said we used to practice we used to have competitions We even used to compete with boys and we were happy. As a girl cyclist, as an athlete, I was doing sports in Afghanistan to stand for the rights of humans, mostly girls. I want to prove that girls are capable, that girls have the right to do what they want. The city of Berlin has approved a plan to expand its bicycle route network to a total of 3,000 kilometers. We will increase the proportion of environmentally-friendly, climate-friendly, and city-friendly cycling by making cycling attractive and safe even over longer distances," said Transport Senator Regine Gunther, a member of the Green Party. The city government is aiming to increase the share of bicycle traffic in the capital to 23 percent by 2030, up from 18 percent in 2018. The plan includes 865 kilometers that will form a priority network on the most important connections for cyclists, 550 kilometers of new cycling path on main road, and 100 kilometers of high-speed bike connections. At the federal level, the German government announced plans earlier this year to double the number of bicycle users by the end of the decade. And in more good news, bicycle sales in the USA are at a new all-time high with many stores reporting record sales and even being sold out of parts or bicycles in the most recent 12 months compared to two years ago sales of mountain bikes increased 70 percent children's bikes rose 57 percent and e-bikes grew by 240 percent this growth is attributed by many in the industry to the pandemic and a surge in outdoor sporting activities. May this pandemic end soon, but the enthusiasm for the bicycle continue. Our guests today are Jim Merrill, Director of Advocacy for Chicago's Active Transportation Group, and Alotanji Oboi-Reed, Founder and Head of Equiticity Ventures. We are happy to have both of you on the show today. The interview is conducted by Nedra Dedweiler.
5: Hello, good afternoon. My name is Medra Jedweiler with KBOO Bike Radio Show. I'm, so, we have with us today Ola Tunji Obayi Reed, President and CEO of the Equaticity Racial Equity Movement based in Chicago. And we are also joined by Jim Merrill, he is the Managing Director of, of Advocacy with Active Transportation Alliance also based in um, Chicago. Thank you both for joining me this evening to talk about Bicycle Bicycle Advocacy. Y'all are two premier individuals, not just in the Midwest, but your work has done some really good things for the movement. And I'm interested in us digging into Bicycle Advocacy. You know talking to all the new organizations that are out there and what they can do also white-led organizations and stepping up operationalizing racial equity and addressing even some of the past harms you know within the movement that we've had thus far and also um obai some of your recent research um that you've been doing and your organization in general um, it's multifaceted, and it's, it seems like it was a grassroots organization, and now it's like, you know, has should be a graduate school program. So we're looking at, you know, how children grow, organizations grow. So I'd also just like to hear how you um, expanded your organization to be able to do the work that you do. And I also would just also love for you to introduce yourself more fully, you know, tell us something else about you besides fighting and also what your organization does. So who um, would like to kick it off?
0: I'm, I'm happy to kick things off here. Okay, um, let's go. <laughs> let's go, let's ride. Thank you, Nedra. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Um, I've watched you up close and from afar for many years. We've uh, had the opportunity to uh, work together I uh, serve on panels together, and your insight has always been incredibly um, important to me and the work we do. So uh, thank you again for giving us this opportunity to be here with you all and uh, share with you. Um, as as Negra mentioned, my name is Obai Olatunji Obai reed I am the founding president and CEO of the Equiticity Racial Equity Movement. We are operationalizing racial equity by harnessing our collective power through research, advocacy programs, and community mobility rituals. In addition to our work on racial equity, we focus on sector-specific or policy area-specific racial justice frameworks, such as mobility justice or environmental justice. We do this work for three primary reasons. To dismantle structural racism, remove racialized inequity, and improve life outcomes for Black, brown and indigenous people i came to the work after spending some some years in nonprofit, profit corporate america I, i've struggled with depression for for many decades and in a moment of crisis i, I turned to a, to a bike and while i wasn't a cyclist that that ride that summer Saturday morning was transformative and it changed the trajectory of my life. As I started to ride and wanted to ride more and more, I recognized that there were some distinct differences from riding in predominantly white neighborhoods and predominantly black neighborhoods. And one of those differences was the city's approach to delivering bike resources to neighborhoods. The city's approach was, we'll put the resources where people would need them the most. Well, naturally, that was predominantly white, middle to upper income neighborhoods on the north side and downtown in Chicago. And they actively admitted that they would not bring resources to neighborhoods that would not use them. Those were black and brown neighborhoods, low to moderate income neighborhoods, where we need the resources the most because of healthcare inequities, because of violence, because of uh, limited mobility. We needed bike infrastructure the most. And that though, that need was in diametric opposition to the city strategy. And that took me down the road of um, organizing around bikes and focused on advocacy and many years later having founded equiticity and here we are, ready to ride.
5: Thank you for the introduction, bye I appreciate it. Jim, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah,
4: thank- likewise. Uh, it's really great to, to be here in conversation uh, with you both. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm Jim Merrill. I'm the advocacy director at Active Transportation Alliance. Um, we're a Chicago-based regional advocacy group our mission is to promote walking biking and public transit to create healthy sustainable and equitable uh, communities um i've met the organization for eight years now um almost nine years yikes and um you know what brought me to this work and i think a lot of folks uh share this perspective i, I previously worked in um and kind of healthcare, uh health equity and health policy stuff focused on hiv aids and transportation um is this like hugely like often over what barrier to accessing basic services um, and resources that people need to to thrive and survive? Uh, and while you know there were kind of any number of um, healthcare access or like housing, I mean obviously not enough, right? <laughs> but uh, I just I just noticed this kind of gap um, in the conversations that I was uh, kind of having, um, and uh, I, I had the opportunity to spend some time in um, Bogota, Colombia, where I got to see um, in well, for me it was kind of like a revelatory experience <laughs> uh, this kind of connection between um, like what I had been working on previously which is you know public health and quality of life and cities and the built environment and how people move around um, and in Bogota if folks aren't familiar um, that is the city where uh Ciclavia originated or open streets and so every Sunday and holiday in Bogota they shut down um, almost 100 miles of roadways uh, to cars and open them up to people um, and it connects every uh, part of the city to parks. There's a bunch of other programming and resources, um, but it is a massive participatory, um, equitable uh, transportation, recreation, cultural experience um, that I just thought was so powerful and um, really kind of turned me on and set me down this path of. Um, learning more about how how cities work and how mobility and transportation impact all these other um, all these other issues. Uh, and so our work largely focuses on influencing. Um, you know we're a membership-based organization, so we have about 10,000 members and supporters on, in the region, um, and we mobilize folks um, around policy change goals on the local, state, uh, federal level uh, around different planning processes that are happening, different infrastructure projects, um, anything we can do to, to try and uh, to advance advance our mission.
5: Okay, great. Both of you um, gave a a, a lens into cycling, mobility that was intersectional. Um, Obi, uh, you talked about housing, health, wellness, um, livability, you know, really looking at linking into the person. Jim, you really expressed around systems, thinking of health systems and health systems of housing and also the built environment, like what the city is responsible for. Um, I'm going to start with you, Jim, and uh, and Obi, I'll follow up with you. Um, Jim, can you tell us like within the advocacy um space what has changed over those eight years because cyclovia has been around what like was it, is it 40 years I mean it's been around and obscene have seen a long of, time yeah yeah but it has really hit the states maybe in the last like five to ten years it's kind of grown and expanded um I'm just wondering like since your time within um within this space what has you what changes have you or no yeah,
4: um, I think <laughs> I think the biggest thing um, has been uh, this uncovering of the, um, or I guess like the, we were, we were talking a little bit before we started, right, about the um, the overwhelming kind of whiteness of like bicycle advocacy and mainstream bicycle um, organizations. And I think that like was very evident when I first came in. Um, a lot of the work was, to Obaya's point, um, framed around specific projects happening in specific neighborhoods. And there was a narrative that was being used to sell, to sell those projects out, you know, the creative creative class about bringing literally like yeah. gentrification. <laughs> uh, so let's bring bike lanes because it's gonna attract affluent folks that we need uh to support our tax base. Um and they wanna have a livable walkable lifestyle. Um so that I mean and kind of coming in from my background, it was really kind of a little pingy uh <laughs> at first. Um seeing kind of who the who the go-to stakeholders were and um I'm not trying to like pick on anybody or anything, but uh this was the kind of narrative that was really being sold and the story that was being told around biking and what it had to offer the city, um, which completely ignored, you know, what my exposure in, you know, in Bogota and, you know, what Obai has done uh, such important work around talking about, you know, bicycles as vehicles for social change um, beyond, uh, you know, a, a means of, of transportation. And it, it took a while, but I do think we're finally starting to tell a little bit of a different story um, and uh, kind of broadening um, uh, how we think about advocacy um, a lot more of, of our work is less focused on trying to get a bike lane um, on X street now and more about how are we changing the entire decision making system so that people's needs are being put at the center of of the process um, and that uh, residents are being uh, put in a position of of power. So it's become much more kind of process oriented and equity in the process, not just equity in the the outcomes. I think is a a big shift. And this kind of of owning up to the and recognizing we have like work to do as a movement Uh, in terms of becoming a a more representative, welcoming and inclusive organization and movement.
5: Yeah, real good. Um, I'm giving you like a, this is what I'm gonna ask you next, uh, both of you around community engagement, um, because to get to where you're going, Jam is going to take some community engagement so i want to talk about like you know partnerships and that sort of thing um but Obai, before we get into community engagement and how you are lifting up voices and how, how narratives actually shift right and how um we can actually how how equity can be operationalized you know how can um, we adjust uh like these oppressive systems that we live in and I'm thinking about, like, your frameworks around justice and centering the human, the human experience, you know, that, that day-to-day life. And, um, and like, how, what brought you into this awareness, um, be it personal experience, how are you incorporating that into your work? how do you make that
0: happen? You're muted, Obia Obi. I went through a bit of an evolution. When I first came to the work, I um, I had uh, founded a bike club called The Pioneers. I um, folded The Pioneers into a a bike movement out of the Bay Area called Red, Biking Green. I then co-founded Slow Roll Chicago. And when I was at the forefront of those iterations of my work, I was a huge proponent of infrastructure. A few things happened though. With Slow Road Chicago, we were riding mostly on the south and west side every every Wednesday night. And young people were telling me back then, this is 2014, 2015, young people, black and brown young people were saying they don't like riding bikes because they feel targeted by the police, all right? So this is five, six, seven years ago. Now fast forward to about 2016, 2017. Around that time, you know, there's a racial justice reckoning happening in society. we were inundated with the visuals of black people being murdered by the police. Tamir Rice, Orlando Castile, Mike Brown in Chicago, Laquan McDonald. Um, um, The video of Laquan McDonald's murder is released as a result of uprisings and revolts. U.S. DOJ comes in and investigates the Chicago Police Department, finds rampant civil rights abuses, among other um, illegalities. Newspapers of record, both in Chicago and around the country, did investigations and found rampant corruption, abuse, racism throughout that institution um, around that same time as I'm, I'm still a proponent of infrastructure, black and brown people at the neighborhood level are pushing back against me. saying we don't want, we don't bite. And that's going to result in gentrification and displacement. We're not going to be able to live here anymore. Take that back. We don't want it. So I, I, I had to just go through this a bit of a metamorphosis because what I had to realize is, should I only focus on getting black and brown people on bikes? I may be putting them in harm's way because when they ride bikes and they don't want to ride on the street that they don't feel safe on and they hop on a bike, I mean, on a sidewalk, then that could potentially result in a police interaction. And in a city like Chicago, that interaction could go bad quick. Or should I only get them to bike and bike infrastructure comes into that neighborhood, there's some potential that that'll result in displacement. So I couldn't be singularly focused anymore. I had to I had to open up to how bikes and the activity of cycling is intersectional, how it connects to affordable housing, how it connects to police and, and policing that's not um, harming our neighborhoods. How does it connect to public health, job creation, and violence reduction? So that was that sort of period in my life where I went through a bit of a transformation that led me to resign from Slow Roll Chicago, which was a bicycle movement focused on bikes, to founding Equiticity, which was which is now a racial equity movement, sector and policy area agnostic. However, we still do a lot of work on, on transportation and in particular cycling. However, we have a broader mission, a broader set of policies that we want to have some impact on and not be limited to a, a narrow focus on bikes. And then also around that same time, the city of Chicago released this Vision Zero action plan. This is on the heels of the USDOJ investigation. This is on the heels of the video of Laquan McDonald being murdered. This is on the heels of anybody who's a little bit watching closely, knowing that our mayor at the time tried to cover up that murder so that he could win another election. On the heels of all of that, a racial justice reckoning in our society, the, the city of Chicago comes and says, we did the analysis. Black and brown people are the most impacted by traffic violence. And we got a solution for y'all, more policing. That's what they said, with a straight face. And we said, no, we pushed back. And ultimately it didn't change anything. However, several years later, three, four years later, right, Jim? We're still pushing back. And we will continue to push back until enforcement is taken out of, taken out of Vision Zero. And we, reimagine what equitable traffic safety looks like it's not vision 0 it's not i know the white planners they love their precious vision 0 it's a little baby they close to their heart. It was a failure from the beginning, and it's failing now. We need a new
5: model. Thank you, Obayi, for <laughs> just going through that history. Um, there are so many young people that I meet that have said, like Trayvon Martin, that was when they they were kind of at their uh, losing that stage of innocence, coming out of that stage of innocence and understanding who they were as a human, as a person. And um, all of a sudden, they had an awareness that they needed to be careful. Or more careful in public space. Yeah. Um, I am wa- wondering, and I'll, I'm going to ask Jim to weigh in on Vision Zero before we make a shift to Jim. I would like for you to um, talk about like what is your vision. I'm um, on your website, you have to go to uh, Obayi's Equiticity's website, and 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 please, you know, share that you know your website, that you know how to look it up, but also sure. you know share what your vision is for um, instead of Vision Zero. What are you What are you trying
0: that reach forward sure so there's there's a few elements to our vision I, at the at the top you know the top level our vision is to help establish a mid to large-sized city where racial equity is completely operationalized in every service program budget agency and everything that's under the mayor's purview everything is pervasive and persistent it's mathematical it's formulaic. and it's legislated we do not leave a commitment to racial equity to bureaucrats with good hearts. Good hearts and warm bodies come and go. Goofy smiles and awkward handshakes come and go. Shifting political winds come and go. We legislate a commitment to racial equity, one which is durable and long-lasting, and it comes from us. It's not bureaucrats and capitalists writing some faux racial equity commitment. It comes from the people in neighborhoods on the ground who Living the inequities in real time. So our vision is when racial equity is fully immersed in a city and nothing goes untouched, nothing goes untransformed. It'll be transformational for black and brown people, and other cities will have a, a better idea of around how to execute that level of commitment to racial equity in their respective cities. And then in terms of traffic safety, there's a few things we have to understand. One, the fix for vision zero as a retrofit is ineffective. It's ineffective. We we've we've lost a war. War of Vision Zero, it's ineffective. It came over here ineffective, and after many years of efforts, it's still ineffective because it came from a European racially homogenous white uh, country with without the same acuteness around racism, without the same levels of poverty, without the same levels of violence, They lean socialist. So they don't don't have the same level of extraction around capitalism. And somebody thought that model would work in Chicago, where racism is particularly acute, where poverty is multigenerational, where police are some of the most violent actors of state violence in our country. Somebody thought that model would work. You know why? Because the people who brought it were white. And it, it does work for them. It doesn't work for us, though. So our vision is a new model, born out of neighborhoods, born out of Black and brown people who are experiencing the traffic safe the traffic violence inequities. So that means we own it and we get compensated for that ownership. The DOT, the mayor's office, they pay us to make our neighborhoods safe. And by the way, I'm not talking out of my ears. I'm not talking without research to back it up. Jim talked about Bogota. There's research out of Bogota that showed a high crash corridor that where the police was corrupt and the mayor in the city decided to reduce traffic violence without police and it worked. Why are we why are we so set on this idea that police is the only answer to reduce traffic violence because we look to Europe and not black and brown people in South America. Structural racism, that's what we call it.
5: Um, Joan, would you like to weigh in
4: on Vision Zero? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, this getting back to the broader, um, <coughs> like, the historical dynamics and, like, the, you know, the blind spot of bicycling advocacy or mainstream bicycling advocacy to the realities of white supremacy um, and their role in upholding it. I mean, nothing, no other issue, like, better surfaces this tension. I think it's, like, that's why it's so important from a movement perspective to be digging into it and just grateful for your leadership or by um, continuing nice. to you know to, to beat the drum um, because it's the thing that makes, you know folks uncomfortable uh who feels safe around police right and who and who doesn't and this is ha- this is happening in real time and so like this is like our our um you know getting back to the thinking about like the process and who's at the table and who's participating in the conversation um i think those of us who are a part of the dominant cultural group it's incumbent upon us to be making sure we're taking every opportunity to educate um the other white folks who are in this work with us um because i i'm seeing it all the time and i am having conversations all the time about uh why like it's it's um, the uh, the logic of um, of policing uh, is this it's it's different for uh, for white folks right and that's coming we're seeing that every day and yeah in, in Chicago I mean we have um, we have that that legacy in the the consent degree. and that I think the other the other historical aspect of the movement. Is often um, how uh, massive infrastructure investment, you know, created the conditions and facilitated white flight and, and segregation. And like Chicago is the like perfect like poster child of that history. Um, our, our you know wonderful colleague, his um, Jackie Grimshaw, has a powerful story. She t- talks about um, her experience growing up and, and the first time hearing about you know the I ninety four expansion coming through is when they were starting to, to mark off uh, where the buildings were going to be torn down. Um, and that's not that long ago. You know, that <laughs> we're talking about within. Very much within living memory, um, and so there's that kind of there's that kind of violence that's, that continues to happen and be, be perpetrated here. And I I, I think um, one of the things that I'm con- I continue to really want to focus on, and I, I think we're trying to to do a lot of internal work um, at Active trans is like not letting um, you know this phenomenon of equity washing. Everyone's knowing everyone is kind of knows the words to say now, <laughs> uh, and what what should or or isn't is or isn't inspected in terms expecting in terms of how we show up um, around around race issues but that doesn't mean that that's going to translate into actual like go by saying operationalizing equity and um, how are we actually really digging into the the power dynamics and making um, shining light on how decisions are actually being made because we're, we're, we're still um, we're still not quite
5: there. I, I think that um, both of you' are making some really good points you know we just passed that what is it build better bill and billions of dollars is coming to each city and um, the, it's like an 80 20 for Roadways, twenty percent for you know transit, but some of that money will go to bicycling um, in this space of you know where people's daily lives meet you know mobility, employment, how they you know continue to have whatever fruitful kind of life. Um, what are you advocating for with this money? Are you will you be able to advocate for um, for how it is used, or is there a plan for it? anyone?
0: Uh, I I'll be brief, and then I, I would love to hear Jim's thoughts on this. Um, So, both Equiticity and Active Transportation Alliance are part of a a coalition here in Chicago called the Transportation Equity Network. And through that coalition, we um, worked with the Chicago Department of Transportation, CDOT, to embed racial equity and mobility justice into their strategic plan. Um, And then we... There was agreement between our coalition, Transportation Equity Network, we call it TIN, and CDOT um, for us to hold them accountable and have some some processes in place where we hold them accountable to the plan that they published, which expresses in some ways a commitment to racial equity and mobility justice. I, I say that to say that through our coalition and our relationship with CDOT, we should be able to use that as leverage to ensure as this federal money is coming down, that there's a racial equity lens attached to it ideally a mathematical formula attached to it and that's what determines how these billions of dollars are going to be distributed in our city and in our region and it not be left to the commissioner at the time or the mayor at the time and and they figure out how to dole it out that there's a formal public process that we have a window into that, that 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 allows us to understand how are these how are these resources being distributed in our city i just
5: want to say congratulations for that work of having an actual plan in place because without a plan, there can be no accountability. You're just kind of going to meetings and banging your drums. Um, I mean, I live in Atlanta and Atlanta is like the most inequitable city in the U.S. for years running, you know, it's like a decade or more. And um, it's furthering, displacing more and more people. So it's not gonna be an issue at some point, right? To have some justice in our in our mobility and how we get around. Like you're just saying also like transportation is. Is regionable. regional. It's not a. It's not just in a one place experience. Um, so I'm thinking about like accountability. Um, what are what mechanisms can both of your organizations together collectively? Or is it pulling in other organizations? How are, how can you um, affect some accountability around that? Um, because one, I mean, I think I am inspired now. <laughs> There's like something else that's even possible. I hadn't even thought of that as being even a, a possibility. So. Um, I'm wondering if y'all could, um, not saying give a playbook, so to speak, but just how can other groups, you know, be it grassroots organizations, um, advocacy organizations, you know, get to this point where they actually have a plan? They've united together and they're working towards um, justice in the system and they create a plan. And then there's like this process of accountability. I'd love to hear, um, you know, both of those things. Feel free to jump in.
4: I mean, I, I, I think, um, uh, i mentioned 10 in the transportation equity network um and what we're uh i guess and there are about maybe 40 different groups and individuals who have been actively involved in some way or another um and it's a mix of community-based organizations and uh you know more like larger like civic organizations um and I, <clears throat> so I, I think like this isn't like what we're trying we're finding <laughs> we're on our way hopefully um but people can't be at the table right if they're like doing their other right their actual work so like if we're not if we're not providing resources and funding uh, and building the capacity so like 10 is very explicit about building the capacity, and that means providing dollars to compensate people for their time and engagement. Um, and over the long term, right? I, mean, I think the, the vision is that we're going to be able to create a much more robust choir of voices to help shape, um, shape the the, the agenda and influence, um, and influence policy. So, I, I think like that's what's different about like this past 18 months or, or two years in Chicago is that 10 we now have a 10 and we didn't before. Um, and I think figuring out, I mean, this is what we're act- actively like working on right now, it's like out how do we transparently um, build uh, uh, a coalition and, and share resources and support work um, recognizing you know both like the historical dynamics of our, our movement and our individual organizations um, we're, we're getting there I mean, it's' <laughs> <laughs> but I think without having that that support for the like uh, everyone says you know, it's everyone says the same thing, right so' it's it's, it's uh, and again getting back to this equity washing and not to pick on cdot and I, it, it is great that they have their their plan their racial equity is really deeply embedded in the plan, but the proof is't is in the pudding. Um, The city also has a new five-year capital plan and is spending billions of dollars and none of the decisions in that first year were influenced by the strategic plan. (laughs) So uh, I I think we still wanna make sure that um, they are uh, being true to those values that they laid out in, in their strategic plan, but without having that, um, that, uh, that coalition that's founded on trust, respect, and really, um, thinking about who benefits and who's, who's burdened and how are those people directly participating, um, we're not going to be able to get to the other accountability because Lord knows the city's not, <laughs> not going to hand it over. On their own. And that's not just not, so, not just a knock on them. I mean there's capacity issues too, right? There's only so many people. Chicago is chronically understaffed and under-resourced, right? And people are being pulled in any any number of uh directions. I don't think that's an excuse not to not to do things. Um but it's also the the reality that we're up against. So it's this this push pull of how are we as the advocates both kind of pushing them and creating the space for them to move into, but we also kind of have to help them. Um so this model that Obi was mentioning of working really closely the CDOT that um that the 10 leaders have engaged in, I think is is a part of it too. I I just I
0: just want to just make a quick point. Um, You know, the transportation sector has done a lot of harms in our neighborhoods. Jim talked about it earlier. They built monuments to racism for future generations to a door. A little boy will go to the monument and say, mama, this is so beautiful. Great grandpa built this. How many neighborhoods did it destroy? And mama will look down and say, baby, untold numbers, untold numbers. You know what we call those monuments today? Highways. The sector, white planners, consulting firms, white-led active transportation, biking, transit organizations need to come to our neighborhoods and bend the knee. Apologize for the harms you've caused. That's the the first step in the healing process. The next step is to repair the harm. What are you doing at a tactical, operational level to repair the harms you cause, your sector calls, your professor calls in our neighborhoods? What we're seeing now is this this sort of embracing of racial equity without the healing process. Oh, okay, everything gonna be all right. We'll, 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 We'll get some black folks in the room. We'll listen to you all. Maybe we'll give out some grants. Fundamentally, nothing has changed, though. It's the same DOT with the same people in it and the same decision-making processes and the same fundamental way of distributing resources. And you know what that produces? No impact on Black and brown people. Show me a city that has committed to mobility justice or racial equity and show me the data that Black and brown people's life outcomes have improved. Why are we doing it? In the event, that's not the result of the work. We're not passing racial equity as an as a ordinance or a state law for us to live in the same annex equities. The reason we do the work is for our life outcomes to get better. The reason our life outcomes are not improving because the systems that are making the commitment are the same today as they were yesterday that reflects a willful ignorance around what racial equity is and it does more harm in our neighborhoods to continue down this path of this empty commitment to racial equity so somebody's able to say i'm with you all and there's no real impact they need to bend the knee acknowledge the harms apologize and operationally tactically Repair the harms they cause.
5: Yes, I, I think that by the time someone gets to the end of this video or this audio, um, listen to this interview with both of you, they will have an idea of what bicycle advocacy is and the difference of mobility in the work that it takes to get there. Um, both of you represent um, two advocacy organizations that are doing mobility justice work, working to, do, working to understand um, and not being caught up in shame or in white feelings or whatever um, but to really move through and process, you know, uh, ah, can still get there. Yeah, it's for real. Like can stay there, but um, there has to be some champions and a constant push. And I think that's the, that is the, that's part of the construct to even, to, to get to this racially just um, mobility system um, that includes safe biking for all. Um, there are a lot of proclamations, right? Like for all, for all. I know we have it here. Everything is like for all, but it's really not that so we don't want to equity wash um but both of you have really described how like what is the vision for what's possible what are some things to change and um you express it very well obai that it really starts with admitting something was wrong and then repairing that harm and you know just calling it out um so with our last like few minutes that we have i would love for i'm going to give you a a list of questions And you can answer whichever one or put them all together. But um, what advice would you offer to those who have started biking since COVID-19? Um, hit the scene and they're now all on bikes all these organizations that are sprang up um, what would you tell um, a white person who is head of an organization how to operationalize I mean you did already but like what are some like one two three you know quick bullet points around um, creating a just um, system uh, what would you say to um, you know like money like what would you say like you know, even just say talk about biking and you can talk about your experience and what you love about it. So i will say in however you would like. But um some of the things, some of our main themes today is just advocacy, racial justice, vision zero, like policies. Um, you know, take your take your last couple of minutes and give your final thought. Go for it, Jim.
4: <laughs> um well yeah, I mean I, I think uh first of all, thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. Um it's really and delightful to to talk with both of you and um I'm grateful for the opportunity to continue to work with you, Obai. Um c- continue down this path. But I think like for the yeah, for the white folks listening who are um it's like maybe ask if you're a bike advocate, ask yourself why are you bike first. <laughs> is it uh is it something that you're you're passionate about? Um but I think for like organizational leaderships, <clears throat> organizational leadership, um, if you're not doing like the internal work, I'm speaking about white people. Like, if you're not doing your to understand how, and even as you know, I'm I'm someone who knows most of the right things to say. Usually, like that doesn't mean that right. I uh, don't have significant amount of work to do. And there are some good. We just read um, this book at our organization, the white staff, called "Me and White Supremacy." Um, which is a really good practical breakdown. And I, I think for folks, wherever they are on their understandings or kind of internalized white supremacy, that's a really good resource. But I think for white folks uh, doing this work, it's it's finding out what that internal work is and finding out the people who could do it with you because there's some processing. And don't make uh, BIPOC folks do that processing for you. Like, you got to own that shit. <laughs> um, and then I think finally, uh, <laughs> and then like the, what are the opportunities to, to share resources financial resources, um, build that into every single grant budget that you're doing uh, that you're, and and embrace, you know, co-creative processes, create spaces where you're building things together. You're not coming up with the solution first, um, which can be hard to do in nonprofit spaces because they always, like, funders always want to ask you what you're going to do um, and you're like, well, we're going to talk about it and we're going to figure it out. But that's the kind of part where we, and I think as like white folks in this space, like confronting funders on how a lot of, like the way that they push things. So uh, uh, that's, what I, would, that's what I would, that's why I said. Do your own work reciprocity listen and listen <laughs> and pay people
0: for their time thank you jam I, I like that i like that little comment you mumbled I, I heard it loud and clear i like it and i am in full support <laughs> shut the up <laughs> um uh yes Nigel. thank you uh, lively conversation really appreciate you bringing us together um on this beautiful night here in chicago and atlanta um so um there's a lot to say here and i'm i'm, I'm trying to think what direction i want to go <laughs> um so uh, we should be clear about a few things there's no commitment to racial equity without a racialized analysis on the front end because without that racialized analysis you don't know the severity of the problem and you don't and you also don't know where to focus your resources So any organization, any um, agency, city, that expresses a commitment to racial equity and you wanna have some sense of how genuine it is, how authentic and sincere it is, ask them, tell me about your racialized analysis. And should they not have an answer? There's no commitment to racial equity. How are you? How are you? How are you distributing resources without an analysis of the problem? So that's that's number one. And then number two is that the commitment to racial equity has to be internally transformational. In the event the commitment is made today, something has to be different about the organization or the agency or the firm or what have you. Tomorrow, how, how is there any authenticity in the commitment to something that is comprehensive and fundamentally shifting that's how it should be it should be fundamentally shifting an organization an agency how could that how could that commitment be authentic in the event nothing has changed so the question is what should change? Well, we talked about a distribution of resources where the priority on the, re- on, on the resources, where those resources go is where they're needed the most. It's, it's basic. It is as basic as math. Children will understand that. And I've talked to children. Okay, that little boy is hungry. He hasn't ate in five days. That little boy had dinner. There's a big pot of spaghetti. Who gets the most? Or do we get the same to each? Children understand that concept. Those who need the most receive the most. It's that fundamental. That's the most basic de- definition of racial equity. All right. An analysis or a racialized distribution of resources. Next. A tactical shifting of power. Who has the power in agencies? Who has the power at these white-led nonprofits? And how are you shifting that power from white people who often don't live in our neighborhoods, are not close to the problem. They come with a narrow box from grad school, no creativity, hardly any real substantive commitment to racial equity and mobility justice. How does a commitment to racial equity allow those same people to hold on to power? And we anticipate that we'll see a a transformation in life outcomes for black and brown the shifting of power next is and 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 don't don't get caught up in the order of these cuz my order may not all be that correct i'm i'm just riffing here as i do sometimes um public accountability the data is public the process is public everything is public about this new commitment that you've made. And that shifting of power creates a mechanism, a tactical real entree point to insert ourselves when this new way of distributing resources, this new way of operating did not achieve the results you intended. Because often cities will say, hey, we're gonna implement this process or this policy and this is what we anticipate will happen and then we never hear about it again we never (laughs) hear about it did it did it achieve the results you told us you wanted in any event it didn't why aren't we doing anything about it so the data has to be public the the objectives that an agency or city is going for has to be public and there has to be a mechanism for us to insert ourselves and say listen it's not working we gave it a year we gave it three years it's not working we need to adjust the point of the project was to achieve these outcomes it didn't work that's part of it so i I, when when we talk about this operational shift that's those are some of the elements that we're talking about and i and i have to impress upon us again the commitment to racial equity is not left to bureaucrats with good hearts It, it must be legislated because that's the only way we can anticipate something that is durable impactful, and long-lasting. When it's only left to somebody in a seat, they leave that seat, and we don't know what's going to happen with that commitment when somebody else takes that seat. So I I just want to tell this um, quick story so we're clear about, do we have time, Nedra? Not really. (laughs) 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 Let me just say that. The mayor at the time, Rami Manuel, and the police superintendent admitted publicly on camera that there was racism at cpd and then they did nothing about it you know what we call that state-sponsored violence so we don't care about words we care about our operational commitment
5: wow i'm gonna call you professor from now on
0: the oh, universe <laughs>
5: <laughs> no this was really good i appreciate um both your candid um you know candid contributions you know real thoughtful analysis about your own work and what is what is possible you know um what we what is what we can create um kind of kind of leave out lead out with this quote that you have on your website obai the most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any by alice credit to alice walker and um you know to share power i mean it's like we're not sharing power when people don't realize that they have power so taking on that personal power and impressing the system to, to do something different. Um, I thank you both for your work in Chicago for um, creating some sort of process that others can follow. Um, I am inspired myself um, to talk to some colleagues here see what we can can do to you know be a challenge. You know even for the folks who are really trying to do that, we actually do the thing and do it right. Um, May Chicagoland be a more equitable city, and both of you take care of yourselves. Thank you, Jim Merrill, and thank you, Obayi Reed. Thank
3: you so much. Thank you, Nedra Deadweiler, and a big thank you to our guest today, Jim Merrill, Director of Advocacy for Chicago's Active Transportation Group and Alotanji Boy reed founder and head of Equiticity Ventures. Thank you both for being on the show and to you and your organizations for your essential work. You have been listening to the KBO Bike Show, broadcasting from Portland, Oregon on 90.7 FM and streaming live on kbo.fm. All our shows are archived at www.bikeshow.portlandtransport.com. My name is Alon Robb, and I was joined by co-host Nedra Dedweiler. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. Safe journeys and all the best in the new year. Health and joy, peace and justice. We will end with Bob Marley's song, Get Up, Stand Up, performed by the Playing for Change song around the world.
2: a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM Hoy miércoles primero de
1: diciembre del dos